welcome back to When One More Thing, um, the podcast where we talk about one more thing from the sermon this past Sunday. Um, my name is No Show Paul Menti. Yeah, Paul, how are you going to talk about this sermon when you weren't even there? I know. I didn't even listen to it. I wasn't even I, what, alive. What kind of youth director do we have that doesn't even come to church? That's right. I feel like church discipline is needed. I'm sorry. Yeah. No, just kidding. Paul, tell them where you were at this weekend. Yeah, I was at my parents' house. I was uh, out for Thanksgiving. So, you know, sad I wasn't able to make it, but, you know, I, I still ran over the passage and I think I have some content from my own thoughts <laughs> today. So we'll yeah. see how it goes. You were up in the Carolinas? Yes. Yeah, South Carolina. South so that's South where my Carolina. parents are right now. Um, my family just kind of live throughout both of the Carolinas. And so, yeah. That's usually the vacay destination. Did you uh, did you go up on Wednesday? Um, yeah, we went up Wednesday, came back Sunday. So yeah, it was a it was a decent trip. Yeah, it's all it's a it's a snaky route through the mountains, which has its pros and cons, you know. But yeah, it was a good time. How about you? How was your Thanksgiving, Matt? It was good. Went down to the ATL, okay, Atlanta. Uh, which means I drove through uh, traffic in Chattanooga, which mm. can be a booger, and Atlanta, <laughs> which can also be a booger. And I had a baby with me for the first time traveling. And so that was learning how that works. But it was good. It was a good time. Happy yeah. to be back. Excited to talk about Titus 2, 11 through 15. What was something that stood out to you in the passage, Paul? Oh, you don't want to give the rundown? Oh, the rundown. Yeah, you, you got to give me the rundown this week. I need that. <laughs> okay, that's true. So so the sermon was entitled The Advent of God. Okay, um, Sunday was actually the first Sunday of Advent. Uh, it started at Advent just means coming or the arrival of an important person. And here in this passage, you see the advent of two things, the advent of grace in verses 11 through 12 and the advent of glory in verses 13 through 14 and 15 kind of Um, so the advent of grace is that through the birth of jesus christ the grace of god has appeared in verse 11 and the grace of god which is the gift of god's unearned um, unasked for freely given love does two things in this passage number one it brings salvation for all people We'll talk about that later. And it trains us. So grace, the gift of God's love, trains us to live a certain way. It trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And it also trains us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the right here, right now, present age. Then while we're living self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age, we are also waiting for the second advent. So Jesus came once 2,000 years ago as a humble baby, but he's going to come again in the advent of glory where he returns to make all things right. And that's what we see in verses 13 through 14, where we're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, the one person, great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, And then in verse 14, it shows what he did in his first advent, giving himself to redeem us from all lawlessness. Um, and that's why Paul has, I mean, that's why Paul telling Tim, uh, Titus that he has to insist on these things. He has to declare them. 
encourage, rebuke with all authority, and let no one disregard you because this is the true doctrine of God. That's basically the summary of the text. Now let me ask again, what's one thing that stood out to you? There you go. Yeah. Um, while, while going through this passage again, um, it's it's hard not to see self-control in there because of how much he's been talking about it through chapter two. Um, you know, he's talking to older men saying you must be um, sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled. Um, and then he talks to older women uh, at the beginning of the chapter, you know, um, talking about them not being drunken. He doesn't use the word self-control, but it's a little bit implied um, with the things that he talks about. Um, he tells young women to be self-controlled and young men, that's the only thing he tells them to be is self-controlled. Um, and then here again, we see um, in verse 12 here, uh, training us to renounce ungodliness and wor worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. And what was interesting to me was he kind of here defines self-control, where he says um, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And that's kind of summarizes self-control. It's, it's, it's renouncing um, worldly passions, renouncing um, ungodly things. Um, and you kind of see that because self-control is a fruit of the spirit. So it's the opposite of these worldly passions, right? It's the opposite of the world. Um, and so I think it's, it's, it's interesting here, you know, uh, in Galatians, uh, let me go there, Galatians 5, 2, or I'm sorry, 22 through 23, he lists the fruits of the spirit, but the fruits of the spirit is joy, love, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Um, and so there it is at the end. Um, but you, you can see, um, that this is something given by the spirit, you know, it's, it's, we are able to be self-controlled to renounce the world and its um, and its lies, um, but we are given that by the fruit of, by by the spirit, um, and it and it's also kind of interesting. The self-controlled idea reminded me a little bit of how Jesus talks about. Um, I looked up the verse Matthew sixteen twenty four where he says, "If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself." take up his cross and follow me. And really at the heart of self-control is self-denial. You know, you're, you, what you naturally want as a human being is these ungodliness and worldly passions. But what is at the heart of um, self-control, which is given by the spirit is this denying the flesh. Um, you know, like it says um, in Romans, uh, I forget where it is, but where he talks about, um, if you deny the deeds of the body, if you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live, you mm -hmm. know, um, that's kind of the heart of self-control. And so uh, it just kind of, it just got me thinking a little bit about how essential self-control is. And if you lack it, um, you should, you should do it. Uh, you should look over your spiritual life because it's, it's definitely a, um, a telltale sign of your salvation. Right. Um, yeah. That was just kind of a, a little something that I that I thought of while reading the passage. But yeah, man, I think it's a wonderful, wonderful concept of applying, like defining self-control, partly at least, as renouncing ungodliness and worldly passions. And, and man, that connection to denying yourself is so good. So it's, you know, you your your flesh has these worldly passions, right? It it has these desires, and self-control is to deny yourself and to pursue something better that's my definition of self-control self-control 
is the spirit-given ability to limit your natural desires of the flesh to choose the great things of God. Yeah. So it might be even better to say deny your natural desires of the flesh. Um, but I think that's a really good definition of self-control. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's real good. And I mean, it's it's so missing in our culture, right? We don't right. have a culture that values self-control or, you know, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Where you put things off. Um, Discipline. Discipline's good. I'm thinking of like you, you don't get all the enjoyment right now, but you, a delayed gratification. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. we're all about delayed gratification. We want everything right here, right now. I buy something on Black Friday. Somehow I get it on Saturday, right? It just happens. Like, <laughs> yeah. The moment. Right. Um, but the Christian says, okay, I have these desires, but I'm going to deny those natural desires to choose the great things of God, um, which would be an upright and godly life, a life of devotion, mm -hmm. piety, reverence, to live quorum Deo. That's really awesome. Yeah. Okay, one thing that stood out to me, one thing that I wanted to add that I, get, I didn't get to talk about was in verse 11, it says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Now, during the sermon, I immediately said, this does not mean everyone has been saved or will be saved. Do you agree with that comment, Paul? Yes. Because okay. <laughs> I said clearly from the pulpit yesterday the Bible does not teach a universal salvation. Now, I didn't have time. I had to resist going into the entire doctrine. But I right. want to just like, you know, take some time to talk about what led me to say that. Why could I look at a verse like verse 11 and say, okay, this verse says that grace brought salvation for all people. How can I say that not all people are going to be saved? And I wanted to talk about the concept that scripture interprets scripture. Okay, this is a crucial element. If you're going to read the Bible yourself, if you're going to interpret scripture correctly, if you're going to be guarded from error, heresy, false teaching, you need to realize that scripture interprets scripture. The London Baptist Confession, 1689, Article 1, um, uh, Part 9 says, the infallible rule of interpretation of scripture is the scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any scripture, it must be searched by other places that speak more clearly. So if you're reading Titus 1 and you want to understand what it means, if you want to interpret verse 11 correctly, the only infallible way to interpret it without fail is to use other scriptures to show what it means. Uh, so when we come to this verse, which might seem like it might be saying that salvation, everybody gets saved. We need to go to the rest of scripture to see where it's more fully and clearly laid out. So I think about Jesus's words on the Sermon on the Mount. There's tons of other places that we could talk about universalism, the doctrine everybody gets saved, and the, you know, the, the reality of hell, the necessity of faith and repentance, um, but I just want to go to Matthew 7 and read these two passages to keep it simple. Verse 13 through 14 says, enter by the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So Jesus says, 
few people are going to be saved and a lot of people aren't going to be saved. And then um, a couple verses down, starting verse 21 of Matthew 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So obviously from those two, two passages really close together in Matthew 7, we see that Jesus taught that not everybody is going to go to heaven, that not everybody is going to be saved. Now, how do we do this? So since all of scripture, we've talked about this before on this podcast, is inspired by God, all scripture is inspired by God, and thus all scripture is inerrant which means that all scripture is ultimately from the same author. And the author is God who cannot lie or contradict himself. So Matthew has been inspired by the same author as Titus. It's, it's ultimately the Holy Spirit who is speaking in both texts. So therefore, what Jesus says in Matthew limits and instructs us on what Paul means in Titus 2 and vice versa. Does that make sense? Like the Holy Spirit was speaking in both of them. And so we can say, okay, this is what Jesus very clearly said in Matthew 7. So as we read Titus 1, we need to be like, okay, could this mean anything else? Could it mean all types of people? Could it mean bond servants and older men, Jews and Greeks? And if it can, it's like, okay, that would correspond much better with what Jesus has said in Matthew 7. Does that make sense? So we have to have a large view and let scripture teach us what scripture says. Now, the only way to really be able to do this um, is to sit under faithful expository preaching and to read your Bible over and over and over again. Because you got to, you know, as you're reading Titus chapter 1, you're going to have the you know, have a solid understanding of what the Bible says about salvation to properly interpret it. There's no um, shortcuts. A good systematic theology certainly would help, Um, but ultimately, I think sitting under faithful expository preaching and reading your Bible over and over will be able to help you interpret scripture with scripture. Yeah, that's something I'm, I'm trying to teach the students as well is like, as we're going through first John, you know, there's, you get a couple verses in there that, that seem a little bit contradictory. Um, and so what I try to teach them and remind them is to always look at scripture as a whole book, you know, don't look at it in its one verse context, but, but, or yeah, it's one verse, look at the context instead, you know, look at the verses above it, look at the verses below it, um, look at other books in the Bible that will help you explain um, what these contradictions might, or these uh, seeming contradictions uh, might be, what they actually mean. Um, <clears throat> you know, one, for instance, is like, uh, you know, John says, no one who is born of God keeps on sinning, you know, and and John in First John already admits that Christians sin. So, so you can, you can look at the context and you can know what he means by um, by just John's theology in general, you know, you can, you can understand that John does not believe that Christians don't sin. Um, yeah, but, but also you, you kind of, you reminded me of, of John 17 when you were talking about, um, universalism and stuff. And I think some of the best verses 
on uh, on why not to believe universalism. I think you can find them in John 17, where Jesus is praying to God. Um, and he's he's talking very exclusively about a group of people and not the whole world. Um, John 17, verse 9, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Um, you know, you, you see Jesus's theology is a select group of people are saved, not, you know, not the whole entire world right um, yeah so, that's good yeah, yeah it's important to put things in context you know there's the immediate context like you mentioned um and there's the context of the whole book which is important but then also the canonical context is what we're talking about and that scripture is one book as you said that's really good and since it's one book ultimately by one author every single part of scripture can speak into the other parts of scripture you know, it's not like Matthew is a completely separate book than Titus. Now, of yeah. course, different books, but since we believe in the inspiration of them both, there's a consistency there. So I think that's really good. Yeah. All right. So that's that. Love it. Any last words? Last words. Um, no, I think we're good. That was All right. good. Love you guys. See you next week. Two more sermons in Titus. Can't wait. Merry Christmas. All right. Ta-ta.